Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. I'm Betsy Kaplan here with Kion Wolf asking uh, during your podcast. I'm not sure what time you're listening to this, <laughs> but we're glad you tune in. We're glad you tune in. I hope every day, but whenever you can. So give us a call, but you have to support the show. We can't do it without your support. 1 800 584 2788. Go online at WNPR.org. And just like you made the great decision to listen to this podcast, please continue to make great decisions by being a member or renewing your membership. If you don't remember the last time you renewed your membership, then it's probably time to renew it. That's a problem. (laughs) It's a problem. But you're going to solve it because you're a public radio listener, and that's what you do. So call 1-800-584-2788 or go to WNPR.org slash donate. And and thank you. Enjoy the podcast. If you would like to do a job like mine, you I would advise you to develop a Zen temperament because basically at all times you're constantly being told that something terrible might be about to happen. I mean, just sort of like something doesn't work or there's a guest, a problem or whatever. And you just have to sort of learn to kind of keep that resting heart rate right where it is. We're going to be fine here anyway. We've got a great show for you today. We're going to talk about the uh, British elections. We are going to talk about a controversial move by the Trump administration appearing anyway to act with good intentions, but uh, nonetheless uh, riling up a storm of criticism. But yes, uh, let's uh, first of all begin with the British elections. Joining us now, uh, a guest we've had in the past uh, and are always proud to get on our show, Roger Cohen, uh, is a columnist for the New York Times, formerly their foreign correspondent on Paris and Berlin. He's the author of Heart-Grown Brutal Sagas of Sarajevo and a memoir, The Girl from Human Street, A Jewish Family Odyssey. Before we go to Roger, um, let's just hear a little bit of the sound of a Boris Johnson victory speech. With this mandate and this majority, we will at last be able to do what? Get Brexit done! You've been paying attention. This election means that getting Brexit done is now the irrefutable, irresistible, unarguable decision of the British people. In winning this election, we have won votes and the trust of people who have never voted Conservative before. Those people want change. We cannot, must not, must not let them down. So Roger Cohen, you know, he, he talks about people who've never voted conservative before. It's not just people who've never voted conservative before. It's people whose parents and grandparents had also never voted conservative before. There were there were seats that hadn't been anything but labor since 1922 that flipped in this election. I mean, how, how big a change was this? Well, Colin, it was a huge change and it was a very particular election because um, the British people had been whiplashed by the Brexit issue um, for three and a half years now since the referendum where Britain uh, voted to leave the European Union, um, a curious act of self-harm in that Britain had benefited enormously over 40 years of EU membership. And people were just sick of it. They'd had it with Brexit. And uh, At the beginning of the year when I was there, I mean, people were just saying, I cannot hear that word again. Uh, There were periods on TV where uh, viewers were assured that the word Brexit would not be mentioned. So I think there was a lot of 
get Brexit done, uh, Johnson's slogan. And uh, Corbyn was a very unattractive candidate to, to many people. And the uh, nationalism of Johnson, the equivalent, if you like, of uh, make America great again, make Britain great again, uh, people, the working class in the Midlands and the north of England, uh, were drawn to that. They were drawn to change. They're fed up with their lives. They want change. Uh, you know, if you're offered a choice between Remain, which was uh, what people who understand the EU wanted to do, and take your country back, and you're not happy with your life, which one are you going to choose? Right. It seems as though part of the problem was this almost quantum Schrodinger's cat state where Brexit had been passed but not effectuated. Uh, people were running out of patience with that. But this, this like a lot of major uh, overturns, this had a lot of components. So we've got the Brexit component. Now you've got, um, uh, you've got a Jeremy Corbyn component, just in the same sense that Donald Trump had a candidate uniquely made for him possibly to defeat in 2016, Johnson had the right opponent this time. He certainly did. Um, I mean, Corbyn was diffident. Uh, He was undecided, essentially, about the European Union. He'd always been, he's anti-American. He's always been anti-Europe in the sense that he thought the European Union stood for big business and big corporate interests. And and so he was kind of against it and then kind of for it because he sensed that a lot of people wanted to remain. And so what should the opposition do? Come out to that. Um, there were the persistent and I found persuasive um, allegations of anti-Semitism allowed to essentially run amok in the party, in the Labour Party, without Corbyn doing much about it. And I think it was more than that. I think, I mean, Corbyn is clearly uh, anti-Zionist, anti-Israel, but I think at times um, he slipped through that uh, increasingly uh, blurry barrier between anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism and did things or said things that uh, sounded anti-Semitic. So... Um, I think, I think that was a factor. Um, and he, look, he wanted to renationalize. He wanted to renationalize the railways, the electricity services, uh, the water services. I mean, this was a radical, if you like, 20th century socialist program. And, um, a lot of people didn't want to go in that direction. Right. Well, let's hear a little bit of of Jeremy uh, Corbyn. It may be one of the last times you get to. I did everything I could. Of course, I take responsibility for putting the manifesto forward. But I have to say, the manifesto was universally supported throughout our party and throughout our movement. So, as I said in my own count result last night, we don't give up on the eternal hopes of a more decent society. You know, it's one thing to be unpopular and lose an election. The words I keep in, uh, encountering about Corbyn are more visceral. They're words like disgust. Uh, and, and, and I think also, correct me if I'm wrong here, there are certain kinds of political leaders who tell you something that theoretically should sound appealing, like free broadband, you know, that they'll yeah, we'll nationalize yeah. broadband and you're going to get free broadband. Well, you know, I don't know about you, Roger. I want free broadband. But if I don't believe the person, then it becomes kind yeah. of a double insult. Yeah, I'd like free broadband too, Colin. Now, that would be great. Um, 
I mean, even there in those few words we heard from Corbyn, he managed to say, um, if you, you know, listen beneath the actual words, he was saying, yes, the buck stops here. It was my program, but the buck doesn't really stop here. It doesn't really at all because everybody bought into it. And this is Corbyn. Uh, he never, and, and just the tone of his voice, that, that, that sort of almost neutral, uh, very, very diffident, uh, um, um, sort of he was, you know, I'm right. I'm right in some sacred internal place that maybe you don't understand. But in the grand scheme of things, I am right. It doesn't matter if I lose. It doesn't matter if I insult people. It doesn't matter if I'm leading a lousy campaign. At some level, I am right. And that put people off. It's very off-putting. <laughs> and, and meanwhile, I mean, I think we have to say, it, this probably is the last time people are going to bet against Boris Johnson. But there's sort of a history of that, of, this, uh, of, of his improbability, time and again. Mm. And then he wins. Mm. People bet against him and he wins. And, and mm. I, I, I think, you know, anecdotally, people who were voting conservative this time often would say, I'm with Boris. I'm going with Boris on this one, which may mean that the Conservative Party is temporarily a cult of personality. Mm. I think it is to some degree. I don't think it is to the degree that the Republican Party is now a cult party of Trump. Mm -hmm. um, I think uh, I think Johnson is highly intelligent. Um, he's buffoonish. He's... Uh, uh, he can be funny, um, and he's absolutely untrustworthy. He believes in nothing except his own power and, uh, you know, lied and misled people repeatedly. But as I wrote in my last column, truth is so 20th century. And as I also wrote, he's a natural. I think he's a natural for our current zeitgeist. He's a natural in the sense that, you know, he doesn't, uh, he's very adept at, at, at using social media. He, he knows that people don't care what's true and what's false. Um, he amuses people. People want to be entertained. He amuses people. And he was deft in a couple of regards, and I, I have to give him credit. Um, I think the first is, you know, look, I, I, I think that, that, that leaving the European Union is, is, a, is, 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 is tragic for, for Britain. It's, it's a terrible mistake. Um, I'm a passionate Europeanist. I grew up. Uh, in the UK, and uh, you know, this has been much more than professional. It's been personal for me. But he did take this question back to the country. It had to go back to the country, in my view, either in a referendum or in an election. He did that, and he won it fair and square. And you can argue with it. And I'm a great believer in democracy. Uh, you, you have to listen. That's what the British want right now. And it's going to happen. And that's that. He was also very adept in um, co-opting uh, and co at once co-opting and marginalizing Nigel Farage's far-right Brexit party, which either stood down in uh, strong conservative constituencies and so bolstered even further, the, the Tory vote, or stood in some other, a small number of other constituencies where, in fact, it took more votes from Labour uh, than, it did, um, than it did from the Tories. So he was very adept in that. And in that, a lot of former Labour Party, I mean, you alluded to this at, at the beginning, at the beginning of the show, but in that a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of Labour Party voters behaved in a way they'd never behaved before. And I think 
you can say that of um, blue-collar Americans in the heartland in places like Wisconsin, Ohio, uh, Michigan, um, uh, also in Pennsylvania. Uh, yeah, they went with Trump. They might have thought he was a charlatan. They might have not believed a whole lot of what he was saying. Um, I don't think they had too many illusions, but they just had it. And um, so they veered toward this... Um, this jingoist, you know, America first uh, message. And I think when you see Labour Party voters veering to the far right and voting either for Farage or not going as far right as that and voting for Johnson, um, you get a measure of, um, you know, of how much people want to change their lives and they're casting around for some means to do that. Um, so uh, there are so many things that I want to ask here, but but one of the questions that I have too is is this current expression of the British Conservative Party the same as the Conservative Party of one's conservative aunt and uncle or grand aunt and grand grand uncle? I mean, it seems to me that there is something a little more nationalistic about it. The border policies seem harsher, voter ID stuff, policies towards Roma and travelers. I mean, I hear a lot of echoes of Trump's vision of the Republican Party in Johnson's vision of the conservative party. Yeah, I think you're right, Colin. I, you know, some people avoid to, uh, allude to the Johnson cult. Uh, I'm not sure I'd go as far as that, but it's definitely... A different party. It's it's an angrier party. I alluded to Corbyn's anti-Semitism. Well, the current Tory party is is pretty trenchantly Islamophobic. And Johnson made remarks about Muslims uh, that Corbyn never made about Jews. I mean, he referred to women in a burqa's letterboxes. Uh, I can't remember. I mean, there were several very directly. Um, insulting uh, references to Muslims, the way they dress, the way they behave, um, uh, from the campaign and from from the Tory party. And, and of course, Johnson had the full support of the Murdoch press and most of the press just just roaring him on. So I think you're right. Yeah, this is, you know, this is not... Um, this is not the conservative party of John Major. This is not the conservative party of Churchill. Uh, this is uh, Johnson wouldn't like that because he, he thinks of himself as Churchillian. I don't think he is. Um, I think Churchill actually believed in something, and uh, I, I don't really believe Johnson does. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's um, it's part of this um, somewhat you know, hateful, frothy, weird time that we're living in, uh, where I think as a result of, of, of Facebook, of Twitter, of social media in general, I mean, I quoted Sasha Baron Cohen in that, uh, in that last column, mm-hmm. saying that, you know, these social media BMFs are not going to change. Why are they not going to change? Because what they thrive on is engagement, and nothing engages more than lies, outrage, and fear. Lies, outrage, and fear. That's, that's the currency in which President Trump traffics. Lies, outrage, and fear. That is pretty much Johnson's currency, too. Mm. And that's where we are. That is the age we live in. Um, where it, we're coming into a new decade in you know a few days' time, a couple of weeks, mm-hmm. a new decade, 
you know, what what is this new decade going to hold? I I I don't know. You know, I I, I must say I do I do worry. <laughs> right. But you know, we'll, well see. Well, Roger, you used the term United Kingdom UK a few minutes ago. So uh, to me, in this new decade, that's one of the first things that's you know suddenly pretty problematic. I think. Let's hear Nicola Sturgeon, first uh, minister of Scotland, leader of the Scottish National Party, which, uh, in a kind of a plague on both of your houses, uh, had a great night uh, in just in terms of rejecting conventional British politics in favor of their own. Let's hear what that sounds like. Now I acknowledge that not absolutely everyone who voted SNP yesterday is ready to support independence. Whether or not Scotland becomes an independent country must be a matter for the people who live here. So, you know, in, in so, many, so many ways, there, there was this. In Northern Ireland, Ireland, there was also a plague on both your houses. In, this, in that case, mm-hmm. the DUP and Sinn Féin. It seems as though mm-hmm. people in these kinds of parts of the United Kingdom, they don't like the old paradigms. They may not be sure about what they do like, but you feel like things are in play in both places. Yeah, I mean, I would not bet on the United Kingdom holding together through the next uh, decade. Um, there's no question that in Scotland, pro-EU feeling is strong. And um, to many Scots, um, this this election and this decision to leave the European Union is just another example of London sticking it to the Scots. You know, like it or not, um, you've got to swallow this. And the Scots are close to... Um, having had enough of that. And uh, there was one referendum, as you know, fairly recently on independence in Scotland. It was it was pretty close. Um, the SNP had a very good night, as you said, Colin. And um, Johnson says he's not going to uh, allow the Scots or offer the Scots the possibility of a second referendum. But sooner or later, if that is where sentiment stands... Uh, in Scotland, there will have to be a second referendum. And I think the chances this time around of um, Scotland leaving the United Kingdom, uh, those chances are are, are very real. I would put them at above, definitely above 50%. On on Ireland, um, uh, you know, the Republic of Ireland is in the EU. Uh, The North will, Northern Ireland will, will not be after... Britain, Britain leaves, but the way Northern Ireland and the whole backstop discussion that we won't even try to explain to listeners uh, um, uh, created this feeling in Ireland uh, among a lot of people that they too were just being toyed with. They were just sort of pawns in this in this discussion. And Johnson has basically misled people, but because now there is going to be some kind of customs border of some kind between. Uh, between Northern Ireland and, and and the rest of Britain across the sea. So, again, I think the chances of United Ireland, while not imminent, and I think would come later than any Scottish move toward independence, uh, again, I think the chances of that have increased, which would be a further fracturing um, of the United Kingdom. And that's, so that's a price. Right. That Britain is going to pay for, you know, this 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 strange um, this strange act of self harm that, that that leaving the EU is. You know, 
it's a massive act of transference. I mean, it's not in psychological terms. I mean, it's not like some Brussels bureaucrat has done harm to Britain. It's not like Britain hasn't prospered since 1973. Uh, it's not as if Britain was in the euro. It's not in the euro. It's not like Britain didn't have control of its borders. It had control of its borders. It was not in Schengen. I mean, this was this was myth. This was a whole lot of people, a bit like with the election of Donald Trump, just saying, I'm not listening to another expert. I'm not listening to anybody from the, quote, elite, unquote. Uh, I just know one thing. I do not like my existence uh, as it is presented to me today. Therefore, I'm going to blow things up. So, so Britain blew up membership of the EU, and, and, and we here uh, in our country, uh, you know, we have, we have the president we have. So quickly, because I know you have to go and we're coming yeah. up on a break, too. Uh, but I just yeah. want to ask you about the sort of survive the long game here. So uh, here there is a way you can map England onto the United States. In each case, this conservative surge is fueled by less educated people and older people, people who don't live in cities. Yeah. But in each case, yeah. that's that's fighting the tide of demographics. Younger people who come online who don't sympathize with this uh, are going to ultimately replace the depleted ranks of, of older voters. You know, and at the same time, you, maybe you lose Scotland. I, I think Irish unification is way, way out there. But it just seems yeah. as though what you've got is a less sustainable system than what, what it looks like. And another parallel is, you know, in this country, the Republican Party doesn't enjoy broad popular support. They've only won the popular right. vote in one of the last seven elections. If you add up the, right. the Senate vote on any cycle, there are 10 million votes behind. They enjoy certain structural advantages as a result of the Constitution. And it seems as though the Tories this time, you know, you look at that number where for the uh, uh, liberal Democrats, it took them 10 times as many votes to per per seat. Uh, Just the way the the map worked really well for the Conservative Party. I'm not sure popular sentiment is exactly the same as the map. I think that's right. Um, And certainly... Theoretically, demographics should run in favor of, uh, of, the, of the Democratic Party here and, and certainly not in favor of Johnson's conservative party. But, you know, we have the political systems we have. Um, and by the way, I think one of the great, you know, if you look at actuarial tables, I mean, it was a bunch of old people messing up the lives of young people, the vote to leave, back, to leave the European Union. I mean, young people feel European. They want to go and work in Lisbon or, or Barcelona or, uh, you know, or Krakow or wherever. And, and now, you know, they no longer be able to. So, you know, I wish I could be optimistic on, on, on that basis. Um, you know, it makes sense. But the last five years, ten years of politics has had one lesson, is that it's dangerous to make those kinds of assumptions. Who would have said that nationalism, nativism, xenophobia uh, would have the resurgence they've had? And that the Internet, you know, the great new thing that was going to make an open, more tolerant world in which everybody uh, was in touch with each other would, in fact, also... Uh, because I, I don't completely negate that side, would also, you know, help, in fact, turbocharge all of this. So um, I'm an optimist by nature. I'd like to think um, you're right in, in looking at the long game that way. I just, uh, 
I guess I've been bruised and battered <laughs> by the last several years, and and I'm worried. Right. Well, as the Who said, you won't get fooled again. Uh, Roger Cohen is a columnist <laughs> for the New York Times, formerly their foreign correspondent in Paris and Berlin, the author of Heart Grown Brutal, Sagas of Sarajevo, and a memoir, The Girl from Human Street, A Jewish Family Odyssey. Thanks for doing this. Thanks very much, Colin. Thank you. All right. So uh, very fortunate to have Roger on the air, always. So we're going to take a break pretty soon, and some nice people are going to talk to you uh, about fundraising and pledge drives and stuff like that. And, you know, I know it's not your favorite thing, but on the other hand, it's the way we get all this stuff done. And, you know, we are a place that really punches above our weight. I mean, our newsroom does that. Our shows do it. This show really does it this year. What we did in the last, I don't know, four weeks was we decided we would launch an entirely new product called Pardon Me, another damn impeachment show, which runs on Saturdays at noon and, and is available as a podcast. And and we, we did it without any additional resources being available to us. So, you know, I mean, if you want to support the kind of stuff that we do, please, uh, when the people ask, say yes. Brexit means Brexit. We'll make our exit, whether they like it or not. I'm Betsy Kaplan here with Kion Wolf, taking just a few seconds out of this podcast that you're listening to of The Colin McEnroe Show. Uh, you can't listen to it or you choose not to listen to it during the day and the evening, but you're going to be rewarded for that because we're not going to be speaking to you as long about asking you to, to donate to the show. But we do need that support. We can't do this without you. So please give us a call, 1-800-584-2788, or go online at WNPR.org and keep this programming going. Now, it's possible that while you're listening to this podcast, Betsy Kaplan is figuring out the next show. <laughs> so, <laughs> so Or not. Or not. Oh, please take a break for once, Betsy Kaplan. But please show Betsy your support. Show us your support. This is the way that you send us a message that you want us to keep going. They do pay attention to those pledges we for do. this show. And when you call 1-800-584-2788 or you go to wnpr.org slash donate, you can write in the little box what you think. And they do pay attention to that stuff. So please give us the rating that is your membership by yes. calling 1-800-584-2788, wnpr.org slash donate. And let's get back to the podcast. Thank you. Did you pledge? I hope you did. Uh, maybe you can do it before the show is over anyway, uh, and because it helps us in particular when you do it now. Okay, so you might have heard me say right at the beginning of this hour, I don't actually use the phrase good intentions and the phrase Trump administration in the same sentences very often. But, you know, in some ways, what happened last week looked like it could have been the product of good intentions. Uh, it may not have played out exactly that way. And here to help us understand that is Michael Brenner. Michael Brenner is the Seymour and Lillian Abenson uh, Chair in Is Israel Studies and Director of the Center for Israel Studies at American University. His book is In Search of Israel, The History of an Idea. He wrote a column about this for the Washington Post. So, uh, first of all, Michael Brenner, welcome to our show. It's a pleasure to be there. So, you know, on the surface of things, as I said, it, it didn't look like a set of bad intentions. The, 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 the goal seemed to be to bring Jews under the into the ambit uh, of uh, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, uh, which, uh, which prohibits discrimination based on race, color, or national origin. And federal funds can be withheld from colleges where students are not protected from anti-Semitism. So, yeah, on the surface of things, what's to object to? But it turned out quite a bit. So help us understand that. Well, I totally agree with you. I do believe uh, the intentions were not necessarily bad. Uh, maybe the intentions weren't also bad when President Trump a week earlier 
um, spoke about Jews as, you know, being good in real estate and mm-hmm. employing some of old anti-Jewish stereotypes um, in terms of money. Um, the intentions probably were not bad here as well. Uh, the intentions are to protect Jewish college students against anti-Semitism on campuses and especially against anti-Israel sentiments. But one of the categories necessary to protect them under Title VI of the Civil Rights Act is either race or nationality or national origin. And traditionally, in the United States, Jews have not been regarded as a different nationality, certainly not as a different race. And um, this opens up the door to a potential discussion and discourse that could um, cause more damage than protect them. Right. So, and, and I mean, we have to acknowledge that there's something bizarre in just the way the language tracks. So, yeah, the phrase in the, in the legislation is national origin. Well, what nation would that be that most American Jews originate from? There probably isn't really one. There's a diaspora. There's, you know, a coming together of all. So it, it, if it's national origin, like what nation would it be? That's a great question. Um, So what I try to show in my Washington Post article is how complex an answer to the question, so what are the Jews actually is? Um, It depends really at which time and at which country, which region you look at. Um, In certain places, um, Eastern Europe, for example, Jews were considered a nationality. And until the Holocaust, the majority of them spoke their own language, Yiddish. Um, They considered themselves as a national minority because they were also not able to integrate as Polish or Russian citizens uh, in in, in the same way as in the West. In the West, and that started in France with the French Revolution, Germany and other countries of Western Europe, Jews were considered a religion. And that became their official designation. So there's a certain irony, even until our own time. If, let's say, a Jewish person moved from Russia, where nationality was stamped in their passport as Jewish, as opposed to Russian or Georgian or Ukrainian, they had Jewish as their nationality passport. Let's say that person moved to Germany, that same person's Jewishness would be transferred, would be changed into religion, because that's the only category country like, say, Germany recognizes Jewishness, and it's also in official papers. The same person, let's assume, moves today to Israel. In Israel, there is nothing like an Israeli nationality. There's an Israeli citizenship, but you can have a Jewish or an Arab or another nationality. And that's, again, it's part of your official document. So that same person first was a Jew Jew by nationality, then a Jew by religion, then a Jew by nationality, just by moving from one country to another. Did that person's identity change? Did she or he see him or herself differently in Jewish terms? Probably not, but the, the country did. Now, I think we were blessed not to have such an official designation or categorization in the United States. The U.S. Jewish tradition is that we don't have to declare what Jewishness means. We're not asked 
to put it in a passport or any ID papers if Jews are a nation or a religion. And I think that's a good thing. And I'm not saying that this executive order changes that, but it opens the discourse to exactly the question you posed. So if Jewish is a national origin, where exactly is this origin? In Russia, in Poland, in Morocco, in Germany, in Hungary? I don't know. So, I mean, one of the things that we're kind of hinting at here, too, I think, is you want to get you don't want to open the door to a future that includes where are your papers, where are your papers that establish who you are. Now, you know, obviously, there's no guarantees in public life. We've learned that pretty well over the last few years. But uh, typically in America, that isn't you don't have to produce papers to prove your nation of origin. If you have a different ethnicity, I don't have to have papers to prove that I'm Irish American. Uh, You don't have to have papers to prove that you're gay if you're exercising your rights under anti-discrimination laws that that uh, affect that uh, minority. Uh, you don't have to have papers to prove that you're black. Um, but somehow or other, you know, I guess maybe as I was thinking about this, I got a little bit embroiled over the weekend in one of those controversies about Native American mascots. And, and the truth about Native American mascots is very similar in the sense that you can sort of say, well, we're really exalting, you know, Chippewas. We're really saying great things about Seminoles because we're they're brave and we're proud to be associated with them, which works only if you don't know any history you know if you don't exactly. know any you don't know exactly. any history of native american genocide and everything <clears throat> that was taken away from native americans it works great and that's kind of what you're saying about this too it's it it works fine as long as you don't know the last 400 years of human history exactly because one thing um, questioning jewish loyalty to one nation namely the nation and the citizenship jews have in this case Jews being Americans, because that's what the vast majority of American Jews are and feel and nothing else but Americans by their nationality and their citizenship. But in terms of even opening up a question, it opens up a whole discourse, tropes of anti-Semitic discourse, um, which questions Jewish loyalty. And again, I don't think, and I'm convinced this was not the intention of the administration. But I think a little bit more of historical background would have helped in at least rethinking it or or, or trying to prevent to put Jews in one of these classical categories and one of them being national origins, which they just don't fit into. Right. So we're going to take a quick break here. We're going to have more Michael Brenner on the other side of this break. There's a couple of other little wrinkles in this whole story that I think are very interesting to explore. We'll do that in just a few seconds. Uh, I want to thank uh, senior producer Betsy Kaplan for putting together the show today. Kyle Wolf's on the board uh, and making everything sound great. Gene Amatruda fixed like six things that were going wrong. He's like R2-D2. He just like locks stuff down while you're flying right at the Death Star. Somehow or other, uh, everything works. So uh, thanks to Gene for whatever it was that he did at the last moment today. We have a busy and complicated week ahead of us. And sometimes you won't hear what we're doing because there will be preemptions due to the uh, House impeachment motion. Uh, So 
we might not be in the air Wednesday, although we'll be recording a show for future use and so on and so forth. Uh, and, but uh, but trust us, <laughs> we're working really hard, and you're going to hear a lot of really interesting new programming. Some of it will come on the other side of this weekend. For example, on Christmas Eve, I believe we're going to have our annual uh, holiday Jim Chaplin, Big Al Anderson uh, holiday special with the state troubadour Nikita Waller. All right, let's go back to what we were talking about before, uh, and, and that is this executive order, which basically defined America's Jewish population as a population of national origin for the purposes of bringing it within the ambit uh, of the Civil Rights Act, of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act. So our guest uh, is Michael Brenner. Uh, of the, he's the Seymour and Lillian Abenson Chair in Israel Studies and Director of the Center for Israel Studies at American University. His book is In Search of Israel, The History of an Idea. So, you know, when all this was happening, it just kind of It seemed also, once again, sort of, uh, you know, uh, in a way that couldn't have been planned. It all took place against a very violent and turbulent backdrop. It seemed as though word of this executive order kind of leaked out informally in the morning. And, you know, then you had this terrible attack in in Jersey City, which we subsequently learned was uh, utterly motivated by uh, anti-Semitism. And then I think the official announcement of the executive order followed that within a matter of hours. All of which, Michael Brenner, uh, would seem to make your job as someone who wanted to raise a caution flag about some of this stuff even harder. Because, you know, in the context of Jersey City, it just seemed like, oh, yeah, we should absolutely do this. Absolutely. I mean, we all agree that measures should be taken against anti-Semitism, which unfortunately is on the rise, both here in Europe and other parts of the world. Um, And... As somebody who grew up in Europe, grew up in Germany, a place where certain statements of anti-Semitic character are banned, are forbidden, can be prosecuted, can be you can land in prison when you deny the Holocaust and cer- certain things against Jews, which I, as myself being a son of Holocaust survivors, of course, always agreed in Germany, and I think it, it has its place there. Um, when I came to this country, I also learned to respect the freedom of speech and the way to fight bigotry, anti- any kind of bigotry, anti-Semitism and others, uh, also in other ways, in fighting them with arguments. And honestly, without lawing so many statements in a place like Germany, did Germany succeed in basically eliminating the danger of anti-Semitism, neo-Nazism, of course not. It may not be the answer, as well intended as that may be. Right. So just statistically, to put an even sharper point on this, um, Jews make up about 2% of the American population, but were the victims of 57.8% of all religious bias crimes last year, according to FBI reports. So, uh, so yeah, there's no question that there's a problem that needs to be addressed somehow. The question is how. Now, I, I think this got even more complicated and more textured and a little bit harder uh, to swallow as pure good intentions, partly because some of the, uh, because of some of the subsequent statements made, and I'm going to single out in particular the president's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, published an op-ed in The Times in which he stressed that this definition of anti-Semitism used in the executive order, but because, in fact, it links Jewish identity to national origin, quote, makes clear what our administration has stated publicly on the record. Anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism. 
So there are plenty of American Jews who would agree with that, but there are also plenty of American Jews who would disagree with that, that you can be, you know, uh, um, not only not anti-Semitic if you're a dove on, on some of some of these questions, right. but you can be a Jew and, yes. and, and be a dove on some of these questions. So there, just as you were saying, Michael, you know, as you uh, here, as you've learned to respect a different standard of speech, well, part of that standard of speech is our ability to argue freely about questions like that. And he seemed to be introducing the idea that maybe we can't. And, and that may open the door to, to indeed, to limitation of criticism of Israel. Now, let, let me make this very clear. I am a big supporter of the state of Israel, of the idea that we need a Jewish state. I don't agree with everything the Israeli government does, as many Jews, as many Israelis don't. I believe that a any movement that wants to boycott Israel, wants to boycott contacts with Israel, like in university contexts, is wrong. But we have to fight this within our means, within the means that we respect the freedom of speech, that we respect the freedom of criticizing Israel, and to equate anti-Zionism and, anti, anti, and anti-Semitism is also not a good solution. Of course, uh, I don't agree with anti-Zionism, but do I want to outlaw it? No. That, again, opens up many attacks, new attacks against the Jews, um, you know, kind of controlling the public discourse. We don't want that either. So I think we have to be very careful. And again, I don't even, I don't even question the good intentions here. Um, but I think we have to be very careful to keep freedom of speech on the one hand and at the same time fight the delegitimation of Israel, fight anti-Semitism, but not by restricting free speech. Yeah, it does seem as though, uh, you know, in making and writing a piece like that, Kushner is creating a record of executive intent so that, yeah, some campus boycott group could suddenly find itself bumping up against Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which I think would come as kind of a rude shock. Uh, and maybe, as you say, not the way we want to resolve our disputes. Not all disputes should be resolved uh, in that way. You know, ultimately, I think we do have the capacity to talk things out. I'll, I'll let you have the, I've got about a minute or so left. I, I want you to just uh, take that to say, whatever else you want to say. No, I, I basically agree. I think as much as I don't agree with what uh, the BDS movement says and, and movements that delegit- delegitimize Israel, I think we have to fight it out with arguments. And, and that's exact, exactly what universities, what colleges are about. We teach our students arguments. We want to fight the wrong cause by the right arguments. We don't want to silence the other side by outlawing what they say. And I think that's something we teach our students. Um, We have done this very successfully in many college campuses. And I think there's so many good arguments to find in favor of Israel's right to exist and of Israel's um, uh, cause that we don't need um, an order that outlaws um, anti-Zionist speech or that equates anti-Zionism and anti-Semitism. We also have to be very careful not to um, make anti-Semitism basically something which 
anything can be defined as anti-Semitism. Right. Anti-Semitism. We, we are going to unfortunately have to go, Michael Brenner, but great conversation, and thank you so much for having this conversation with me. If you liked this conversation and others that we have, please support us when these nice people ask you to support us via pledge.